0: Matthew 27, we'll start in verse 45 here in just a moment. Before we dive in, I want to tell you about something awesome that happened here yesterday. If there's a feeling of an afterglow of glory in the building today, it's because yesterday uh, our church hosted its first event called recess. And this is a term that, as a part of our church, you need to commit to your memory and just know by heart. It's a part of our cultural vernacular now. Recess is a respite ministry for families who have kids with special needs and their siblings. And so yesterday... Uh, We hosted seven kids with special needs, five siblings, and had close to 30 volunteers who from two to six yesterday gave those moms and dads a break to go shop, eat, nap, sit in silence, do whatever they wanted to do with their time. And uh, this place was hopping with activity. It was a glorious, glorious thing. I'm so excited about the leadership that's put this in place and is carrying it out. The mass of volunteers who have stepped up to say, we care about this and want to do this well. It makes me so proud of this church. I'm excited about what the future holds for us in this ministry. We have precious families who need the church to leverage our influence so they can get some rest and know that their kids are loved. And I'm so proud of what our church is doing here today. So keep your eyes and ears open in the future. And would you please give some gratitude to the Lord? awesome what God's doing among us. Just awesome. Uh, so Matthew chapter 27. I've got permission to tell the following story. That's very important. A few years ago, we had a conversation with our girls, maybe at dinner one night, and the question was asked, "What's your earliest memory?" And some different things were shared. And then our daughter, Avery, who's 12 now and was a bit younger then, she said, My earliest memory, Dad, is of the day you forgot to pick me up at preschool. (laughs) Let me just say for the record, (laughs) from the day of her birth to that day at preschool, there were many memorable things... (laughs) that I did and my wife did birthday parties Christmases putting bikes together stepping on toys all, all these marvelous wonderful things but the one thing that stuck out was this one day where my wife normally would have picked Avery up but she, had a, she was at a doctor's appointment I, got, I lost track of time in Best Buy as one is wont to do and then I, I got a phone call from the school. Uh, Mr. Busby, are you going to pick up your daughter today? <laughs> oh, well, someone is. Uh, so she got picked up. She was fine. But that, so the moral of the story, parents, is this. Don't do too many nice things for your kids too early. <laughs> they will not remember them. You should not take babies to Disney World. Wait until they are old enough to form cognitive memories You want those investments to pay off. No one needs a Pinterest party for a one-year-old. They're just, they're cute little Neanderthals. They do not care. They will not remember. It seems easy for us to look back and to only remember bad stuff. And we're all prone to that, to look to the past and, and think of the bad stories. I, I'm afraid that's often what we do with the cross as well. When we think about Christ on the cross, we think primarily bad things or we think sad things. We'll focus on the horror of the event. And it's right that we should. I mean, we, we need to feel the weight of what Christ suffers on the cross. And we need to be reminded regularly of what Christ suffered on the cross. This is why we take the Lord's Supper every month as a church. That's why we have this cross here to remind us of what Christ did on our behalf. We have to remember His suffering. But we also must be able to articulate what it is that that suffering achieved for us. It's one thing to be able to say, I know that Jesus suffered on my behalf. It's another thing to be able to say, here's what was accomplished for me in his suffering. So last week, we walked with Jesus to the cross. We saw him stripped and nailed to the wooden beams and hoisted in the air, hanging between heaven and earth. And we saw him mocked by everyone present. And today, in our passage, we're going to see Jesus die, and then an amazing series of events unfolds. And those events are going to help us understand the meaning of Christ's death on the cross. So my purpose today in preaching this passage is this, I want you to see the beauty that comes from that awful cross. I want you to leave here today saying, these are the things that Jesus achieved for me in his death. To do this, I want to show you four accomplishments of the cross of Jesus. So follow along with me as I read in Matthew chapter 27, and we'll start in verse 45. Remember, Jesus is already on the cross. We get to verse 45, and Matthew tells us, "From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land." About the ninth hour. Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs, and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the Son of God. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene. Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. So I want to show you in our passage today four things accomplished by Christ on the cross on your behalf. This is what the cross means for all those who would come and believe. The first thing Jesus accomplishes on the cross from our passage. The cross is where grace is poured out. If you're taking notes, number one, the cross is where grace is poured out. Matthew gives us some vivid details of what happens in this scene. He tells us, starting in verse 45, that for three hours, a supernatural darkness sets in. It's not just a cloudy day. It's a sin-darkened day. And after being on the cross for several hours, Jesus then cries out in a loud voice, Matthew records Jesus as saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you were with us last week, you know that that line is a quote from Psalm chapter 22, verse 1. So in this moment from the cross, Jesus chooses to quote a line of suffering from what kind of psalm? A psalm of victory. You remember that from last week. And those who heard Jesus say this, they completely misunderstood him. They did not understand what he was saying. They thought he's calling on the prophet Elijah. There's apparently similarity between the line Jesus quoted and the name Elijah. And that just struck them as so sickly funny that here in Jesus' moment of ultimate suffering, he's asking Elijah to come and rescue him from the cross. So one of the bystanders runs and grabs a sponge, dips it in this sour wine, this common wine of the people, puts it on a stick so he can reach Jesus' face and lifts it up to him. And the people shoo him away. They say, get away, leave him alone. Let's see now if Elijah will come to rescue him. There's such contempt in their words towards Jesus Think of all Jesus has suffered up to this moment, having been flogged and then nailed to the cross and hanging there for hours, and yet there is not one ounce of mercy to be found in any of the bystanders. They continue to spew unfiltered hate throughout the entire event of Christ's slow death. Then in verse 50, Matthew tells us that Jesus cries out one last time in a loud voice, Now, other gospel writers give us more of the words of Christ from the cross. Matthew keeps it tight and focused. He just tells us in verse 50, Jesus cries out in a loud voice. I think that's an important detail. You wouldn't expect Jesus to do much more than just whimper at this point in all that he suffered. But the fact that he cries out in a loud voice tells us he has control over this moment. Bad guys are not winning, rather salvation is being accomplished through his death. Jesus cries out in a loud voice, and then after that, Matthew says, he gave up his spirit, he died. We've been building to this moment since we started our study at the very beginning of chapter 26. Chapter 26, verse 2. You remember what Jesus said to his disciples? He told them the Son of Man is going to be handed over to be crucified a little bit later, they're in the house of some friends, and a woman comes and pours perfume all over Jesus. So in 26, 11, and 12, Jesus tells his disciples who were upset at this. He says, the poor you'll have with you always, but you'll not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. The whole scene points towards the cross. Chapter 26, verse 26, Jesus gives his disciples some bread, and he says, take and eat, this is my body. Verse 27, he gives them some wine, and he says, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. It all points to the cross. Chapter 26, verse 42, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying about what's before him, and he says, My Father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink it, may your will be done. He's looking to the cross. Chapter 27, verse 22 Jesus stands next to Pilate before an angry mob, and the Roman governor Pilate asks the crowd, what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they answer, crucify him. Everything in every scene points to Jesus in the cross, but it isn't contained just to our little study from chapter 26 and on. You can go back to the first chapter of Matthew, and there you will see the cross when Joseph, the father of Jesus, is visited by a holy messenger in a dream and the angel tells him to not be afraid to take mary as his wife she's going to give birth to a son you are to give him the name jesus why because he will save his people from their sins the very beginning of matthew points to christ on the cross Well, we can go farther back from that. You could go to the prophets, a lot of places. Isaiah 53 describes the suffering Messiah who will come and by his stripes bring healing for all those who come to the Lord. You could go farther back than that to a place where God promises King David, you're going to have a descendant who will sit on your throne forever. You can go farther back than that, Genesis chapter 12, and God tells Abraham, through you, all nations on earth will be blessed. From the opening words of the Bible, the cross is in view. God always has had a cross plan for our sin problem. The mocking and the pain that Christ endures at the cross, the the way these people behave around Him, can I just tell you, that's not unique. It's not especially intense in this story, in this moment, this is par for the course for a sinful humanity against a holy God. We just see ourselves laid bare in this story among the mockers as Christ, the Holy One, hangs between us and God to pay the price for our sin. And He still does it, the way He's treated, the way He's mocked the way he's brutalized, Jesus still does what we cannot do for ourselves. This is what you and I would call grace. A very simplistic definition of grace, perhaps far too simplistic. Grace is when God gives us the good thing that we do not deserve, the good thing we have not earned. And Christ's death on the cross in our place is God's incredible gift of grace to you and I. It is not for the good people. It's not for the level 12 disciples, whatever that is. It's not for the people who have more good than bad. It's not for the people with good intentions. It is for every mocker, every soldier, every sinner, every person in this room. God gives grace through the death of Christ on the cross. In every other world religion and system of thought, your God will do good for you when and only when you have earned it through religious duties and activities. When you earn that God's favor, He will give that favor. Only when you earn it, only when you merit it, Christianity is utterly different. There is no comparison, my friend, because Christ died for the ungodly. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is all God's grace. To people like you and I, do you see how much you're loved in this story? Jesus stays on the cross and he endures the pain and the mocking and the wrath of God on sin and he does it as a gift of grace for you and I. What happens at the cross? Jesus suffers supremely, yes, and grace is poured out in abundance. The cross is where Christ pours out grace, a second thing achieved at the cross. The cross is where a new covenant is formed. So the cross is where grace is poured out. Second, the cross is where a new covenant is formed. Uh, at the moment that Jesus dies, some strange things happen. Matthew first tells us in verse 51, look at what he says. After Jesus has died, verse 51, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So I want to make sure we know what we're talking about when we talk about the temple. So the Jewish temple in Jerusalem was the center of the universe for Jewish peoples. Just one temple, many satellite campuses called synagogues, but just one temple in Jerusalem. And we cannot overstate the importance and the centrality of this structure in Jewish life. Try to think about what, what is that one building in Boston that is most iconic and most uh, emblematic of a New England identity? I, and I don't know what that building is. Maybe Faneuil Hall, maybe Old North Church, maybe Fenway Park. I don't know what the answer is. But it, it's something there. It's that building that just it, it evokes so much emotion and memory and identity for you. Well, that's kind of what the temple was times infinity, Uh, The temple, it's the center of the universe for these people. And what makes it so important, one of the things that makes it so important is this is the place where God's unique presence was believed to dwell for a period of time. There's a room on the inside, the farthest inside place of the temple called the Holy of Holies. And in that Holy of Holies, here's the, the unique, special presence of God. Now when people thought about the temple, the, the temple had different layers of access to it, kind of like the Pentagon, right? Everyone can get to the first level. The second level, you've got to meet certain criteria. Third level, certain criteria. And it goes on and on until you get to the Holy of Holies and only one person was allowed to go in there. That was the high priest. And he was only allowed to go in there just once a year. So you've got these layers upon layers of division to keep people out, to let some people in. And Matthew tells us that at the death of Jesus, the curtain inside that temple, huge curtain, massive, this curtain is split in two from top to bottom. That it's torn from top to bottom tells us that this was not something any person did. There wasn't some group of guys at the bottom cutting it up the middle and then tearing it apart. Top to bottom tells us this is an act of God in this moment. Uh, And now, whereas God was only approached before, through the sacrifice of animals and certain laws, now that the curtain is torn from top to bottom, it's a way of telling us there's full, unfettered access for everyone who comes through Jesus Christ. It's not limited to high priests or junior priests or men or just Jewish people. Access to the most holy is open now to all people. That the curtain was torn in two also tells us that The old ways of keeping people separated are over. Everyone has access to God through Christ. This is the new covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ, that you have full access to God through God the Son. Now, several years ago, Melissa and I had the opportunity to take a trip to Israel. And uh, just like everyone who's been there says, it's life-changing. I highly recommend it. It's not just a tourist trap. It really is a phenomenal trip. And one thing that was so impressive to me, being especially in Jerusalem, was all the external expressions of religion. So uh, every hotel that we had, our, every hotel room, every building we went into, had what's called a mezuzah hanging in the doorway. So nailed inside the door frame, this little case with a little bit of scripture written on it and, and the practices, you touch the mezuzah when you leave, you touch the mezuzah when you come home, and uh, you're walking with the Word of God into the business place and into your home. I thought, I man, what a cool tactile reminder. Tactile things are fascinating to me. Uh, and then all the other externals, like yarmulkes, right? So I, I had to buy a yarmulke. I bought a yarmulke and... Uh, I have quite a bulbous head, so, but they don't sell big and tall yarmulkes. And, uh, or I need one with some hair sewn around the edge. You shouldn't laugh so hard at that. It hurts my feelings. The yarmulkes is a sign of devotion. And one thing that really struck me as a tactile sign of devotion was uh, the prayer shawl. And uh, so they, they sell prayer shawls like these. It's, just, it's a big blanket. And, um, and what Orthodox Jewish people would do there, do there, is uh, they'll wear these, men will wear these under their clothes. So they, they have a different type. I mean, it's similar, but it's a bit different, so they can wear it under their clothes. And then um, uh, you wouldn't know they were wearing it except for these tassels are left hanging out of their waistbands. And the thought is that this prayer shawl is a, a place to to hide under the goodness of God and your prayers to God are amplified when you wear the prayer shawl. That's why they would wear it with them all the time. That way every prayer is amplified to God. So I had this thought. I bought this prayer shawl. I had this fleeting thought. I'm going to take this home and I'll start doing my quiet times wrapped up in the prayer shawl just as a sign of devotion and a sign of my seriousness in in, in my prayer life to the Father. So I thought about that briefly, and then I had this realization. How silly for someone to cover themselves with a piece of fabric when they are covered by the righteousness of Christ. I don't need a blanket when I've got Jesus. How better could my prayers be amplified to the Father than through the Son who laid down His life for me? not this small hat, not this little blanket, not a temple with a curtain. None of those things give me better access to God than what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. So Jesus, in His death, He is the fulfillment of the law, and at His death, He does away with this old temple system, and He creates a new covenant in His blood. And now, now, the way to salvation, the way to Yahweh, the way to the Father is through faith in the Son. This is what Christ accomplishes at the cross. The curtain is torn top to bottom. You and I have full, unfettered access to God the Father through the Son. So what is Jesus accomplishing on the cross for us? One, He is uh, pouring out grace upon grace upon grace. Two, He is forming a new covenant for you and I, a new way to approach the Father. Three... The third accomplishment of Christ on the cross, the cross is where life is found. The cross is where life is found. Look at verse 52, well, middle of verse 51. Look at what Matthew says here. He says, the earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. So the first thing that happens after Jesus dies, the curtain in the temple is torn from top to bottom. The second thing that happens is weird. There's an earthquake and there's this resurrection moment. These saints are... Tombs break open, saints raise from the dead. A few days later, they come walking into the holy city and appear to all these people. This is a place where all thinking Christians will just say, I'm going to read through this quickly and not think about it too much. I'll just mumble it. Or this is why we would study Luke's gospel at Easter or John or Mark and not Matthew because this is so profoundly uncomfortable. It sounds so weird. Now, Bible critics will say this. They'll say that this is a detail that should lead us to question the reliability of the New Testament documents. After all, Matthew's the only gospel writer who gives us this story. No one else gives us this story. And they might say, hey, if something like this happened, it might be newsworthy. It might make the cut for Luke or Mark or John. Bible critics would go on and say, what's more, there's no writers outside the Bible that attest to this If there's some resurrection and people, not zombies, but people raised from the dead, they come walking back into Jerusalem, surely someone would record that in written history for the rest of us to remember. The Bible critic would go on to say, besides, look, we, we have no firm evidence that this book is really even written by Matthew, or even that a historical Matthew even existed And so the critic's conclusion is, you know what? uh, This little story really is an addition from a later editor. Someone down the road concocted this story. It served some purpose. They put it in to bolster, to add supernatural things to the story of this Jewish peasant who died a common death. Uh, That's what the Bible critic would say. It's pretty unbelievable. But it's not nearly as unbelievable As the unlimited God taking on flesh, being born of a virgin, dwelling among us, laying down his life on the cross, three days later taking it up, how are we going to believe in the events of the cross and say, I don't know about this thing here? I'm telling you, the Bible critics can stick it up their nose. As for me, I'm all in with Matthew and you should be too. Because what we have in this admittedly strange account is a living parable of what the death of Christ accomplishes. He gives life to those who are dead in their sin. And you and I don't have to have an explanation for every little detail. We just have to understand the bigger meaning, the picture Matthew is painting for us. And so when we read that, rather than cringing and thinking, I wish the Bible didn't say such things, let's throw our hands up and praise God for what he has done for us in Christ because we were dead in our sin. And only through the shed blood of Jesus Christ is life given to us. And giving spiritual life to the spiritually dead is no greater thing than bringing the physically dead back to physical life, Jesus gives life to all those who come to him in faith. And what does that new life look like? Well, it's right for us when we think about new life, spiritual life, to think about eternity and, and, and what God promises his children in glory. That's a beautiful thing. But that new life doesn't wait to kick in until you breathe your last here. For the follower of Jesus, new life is in the here and now. New life is words that comfort, hands that heal, backs that bear our brother's burden. It's forgiveness to our offenders. It's voices against injustice. It's advocates for the voiceless. It's vigilance against our sin. New life is the pursuit of humility. New life is loving God with everything we have and loving our neighbor as ourselves. That's the life Jesus gives to those who turn to him in faith. That's the life he would give you this day if you would say yes to him. On the cross, Jesus accomplishes so much for us. One, he pours out his grace. Two, he forms a new covenant, a new way of approaching God. Three, he gives life to all those who come to him. Fourth, The cross is where we are loved. The cross is where we are loved. Verses 54 through 61 spell this out for us. So in the aftermath of Jesus' death, earthquake, curtain torn, tombs break open, new life to these saints. Well, then Matthew turns the spotlight on different groups that witness these events. And, And so he gives us the account of three witnesses, three people who are present at the death of Christ on this day. And so the first people he turns his attention to are the Roman soldiers. Look at verse 54. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. This is a stunning confession by these Roman soldiers. Remember, this is the same group that has just flogged Jesus to within an inch of his life, who then dressed him up in pretend king clothes and did some sick charade with him. These are the ones who have brutalized him all the way, who pin him to that wood with those spikes and hang him on the cross. That's who we're talking about. And that these people would recognize and would say, surely he was the Son of God is a stunning statement. The power of the moment sobers them. Matthew says it terrifies them. They realize Jesus is not the human scum they thought he was. Now when they call him the Son of God, do they understand fully what it is they're saying? I I don't think so. At this moment in the story, no one fully understands None of the disciples, no one fully understands what it means for Jesus to be the Son of God. So their confession is a a premature confession. It's not understood in its fullness just yet. But still, it is noteworthy. Because these Gentile, Roman, thug soldiers who nailed Jesus to the cross, these soldiers are the first ones to make this declaration about Jesus outside of Jesus and his disciples. The first confession, he's the Son of God, comes from Gentile Roman soldiers who put him on the cross. That is no small thing. A second group we're told about witnesses to the crucifixion present on this day. In verses 55 and 56, Matthew tells us there were many women present that day who were followers of Jesus. They watched from a distance. He tells us these women cared for Jesus' needs, so uh, what that likely means is that they were the financial backers for his ministry. They're present with Jesus, I I think, in so many places, just kind of invisible in the background. So many stories we read in Scripture, I I think some are limited to the twelve, and others involve this group of women who are from the region of Galilee, and that they're from Galilee but they're present in Jerusalem on this day means they've been traveling with Jesus for some time. They've made a commitment to be with him, a commitment of time, energy, finances. It's worth noting that nowhere in Matthew's gospel does Jesus have problems from women. His adversaries are only men. And these women in particular, his disciples, these sisters are present for the crucifixion. They're present for his burial. Three days later, they're going to come and apply spices to the body. They're going to try to apply spices to the body. He had to be buried in a hurry. Sundown was coming. Sabbath was about to begin. They had to get him in the tomb quick. So they would come back after the Sabbath then to apply the spices to his body. These women show bravery, courage, commitment that others do not. What's notable about it is that, as you may know, in the first century, in this particular culture, women were treated like second-class citizens. They were the victims of rampant divorce, had no voice, no power, no say when their husbands decided they wanted to leave them. It was called good by religious ruling authorities, and the husbands were uh, given every freedom to do whatever they wanted. Women could not be witnesses or testify in court. Women did not have the same rights as men. So this small group of second-class citizens are bold and brave and courageous. They stand as witnesses at every moment of his death, burial, and resurrection. A third spotlight Matthew gives us is on a man named Joseph. He's from a town called Arimathea. Now, we don't know where Arimathea is. There's some guesswork. We're not certain. Uh, And we don't know a lot about Joseph from Arimathea. What we know comes just from... Uh, Pulling together details from the Gospels. We know this. He's rich. Uh, We know this. He's a religious leader. Luke tells us he's a member of the Jewish Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin. We know this. He's a disciple of Jesus also. And Luke tells us that Joseph did not agree with the events that went on and the way Jesus was treated. We know up to this point Joseph has been a secret disciple, but now he outs himself as a follower of Jesus and had to have been a man of significant social influence because he asks for an audience with Pilate, the Roman governor, over these events. He gets that audience. He asks for the body, and he's given the body. His generosity is on full display. He takes this one who was killed as a criminal and lays him in his own tomb according to Jewish law, that would mean no one else could ever use that tomb. It's an expensive piece of property that he gives to the body of Jesus. Who's present here in the aftermath of all of this? We have Gentile soldiers, we have women who are second-class citizens, and we have a member of the Economic elite, religious elite, social elite. We've got Joseph. And all three of these people find welcome at the cross. The cross is not a place where the old divisions and the old separations exist. And it it's certainly not where new separations are instituted to keep men from women, ethnicity from ethnicity, economics from economics. It is the place where Christ's love goes freely, broadly For the sake of all those that he died for. Jesus doesn't measure people up by accomplishment, achievement, or by any other standard. Jesus looks on us sinners, pours out his grace, says, I'm the way to the Father. I'm going to give you new life, and I love you this much. I'll lay down my life for you. And so everyone who comes to Jesus at the cross, regardless of background, achievement, reputation, everyone there finds love. You're loved by Christ not based on title, accomplishments or wealth you're simply loved and you're not loved less for being a mess up, a failure, an outsider or an outcast you are fully loved you don't clean yourself up to come to the cross you just come and Jesus pours out his love the cross has such significant implications for the way you and I lead our lives to have been loved this way has requirements on us as well. And so this gathering, this little gathering here, every Sunday when we get together for church, it is a radically counter-cultural experience. Because in this family, family, we don't care what you make or what you don't make. We don't care where you're from or where you're going. We don't care what your struggle has been. We know this. You are loved by Christ. You are valuable to him. And when you say yes to him, he will exalt you, forgive you, give you new life, everything you want you find in Jesus Christ. So that's why the church does not show favoritism. And that's why the church abominates racism. We dig that demonic thinking out of our hearts and get rid of it at every cost. This is why the church will put energy and resources towards members of our family with special needs whom culture may say those pregnancies should have been terminated. But we see in them the very image of God. And we will let them know they are loved. And we will let them know they are valuable. And we will let their moms and dads and brothers and sisters know that Jesus is for them and with them. And so is his church. Because we're recipients of this extravagant love of Jesus Christ. It makes the difference in the way we relate to every person. And so if our brother is cold, we give him our coat. And if our sister is hungry, we give her our food. We value everyone in every life because that's how we've been loved. So, if I were to ask you this morning, tell me some things that Jesus accomplishes for you at the cross. Could you give me some answers? Could you tell me, here's some things that Christ in all of his suffering did, just from this little passage right here. I hope you'd be able to say, yeah, the cross is where grace is given in abundance. It's where a new way of relating to God is created through Jesus. It's where new life is given to all those who come, and it's the place where we are loved. Gentile soldiers, second-class citizen, Jewish religious elite, Brockton, Hingham, doesn't matter Jesus loves us and shown his love for us at the cross. It's so difficult, I think, for us to believe that we are the recipients of such extravagant grace and extravagant love. Too often we define ourselves by our failures and we just, we've got it ingrained in our heads I got to work, I got to do, I got to achieve so that God will do me well. And so we rest on our baptism or on communion or on our morality or our charitable giving or our good intentions and think, surely these are reasons God would do me well. It's just not the case. It's okay to say, I'm a sinner and he loves me and he's shown grace to me and he's poured out mercy for me through Jesus Christ. A writer that's helped me understand this, As much as anyone outside of scripture, is uh, a guy named Brennan Manning. He's written several books, most notable, a book called The Ragamuffin Gospel. He's a former Franciscan priest. And uh, he says this about our standing before God. He says, When I get honest, I admit I'm a bundle of paradoxes. I believe and I doubt. I hope and get discouraged. I love and I hate. I feel bad about feeling good. I feel guilty about not feeling guilty. I'm trusting and suspicious. I'm honest and I still play games. So all that is good is not ours by right, but by the sheer bounty of a gracious God. We have the power to believe where others deny, to hope where others despair, to love where others hurt. This and so much more is sheer gift. It's not reward for our faithfulness or our generous disposition or our heroic life of prayer. My deepest awareness of myself is that I am deeply loved by Jesus Christ and I've done nothing to earn it or deserve it. I hope that's your realization today. You are deeply loved by Jesus Christ. And do you need a visual reminder of that love? So here it is right here a cross that he once hung on but now is empty. He loves you this much to lay down his life in your place and to call you to trust in him, not your doings, not your earnings, not your achievements, but just his work and his work alone. Trust in him. Let that salvation come to you. The cross stands as unmistakable evidence that you are loved by Jesus. May the soldier's confessions be your own today let us say surely He was the Son of God. Would you pray with me, please? God the Son, we praise You for the gift You have given us in Your life. We cannot articulate fully enough what it means that you came and died. It's hard for us to grasp the seriousness of that. And yet you did it. For sinners like us, you showed your love, you poured out your grace at the cross. We praise you for this. Thank you, God the Son, for winning our salvation at your death. We praise you, God the Father, that this has been your plan all along to reconcile sinful humanity to yourself. Thank you that though you are right to judge sin, you have seen fit to save some. God, the Holy Spirit, we praise you for helping us to hear this word, opening our hearts, softening our hearts so that we would turn from ourselves and turn to the one who gave everything. So this morning, Let us confess with the soldiers. Let us proclaim from our souls. You are the Son of God, the one who gave everything, the one we trust, the one who saves us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.